Galatians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 5 is our scripture reading. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we as your church can gather to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we thank you that we have this opportunity to sit under your word. We ask that you, by your spirit, would apply it to our hearts and our minds. Would you speak powerfully through Pastor Jeff this morning? It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ryan. Good morning. We'll be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, and I want to show you why. This one is worth putting a little bookmark in. Imagine that today you knew how your entire life, every detail, would shake out. In other words, you know what God knows about how your life will unfold. How would knowing the future change how you made decisions? Uh, how, how would knowing the future with certainty change which things you did and which things you didn't do? We would likely be tempted to avoid those situations that would cause us to face suffering. Of course we would. I know I would. We would likely uh, uh, avoid those circumstances of our lives that cause us uh, great pain or loss or any kind of suffering. But in so doing, in, in some cases, not all, but in some cases, we would rob ourselves of the growth that can only be delivered through those trying times. Seeking to sidestep pain in every twinge of discomfort, uh, we would deprive ourselves of facing trials. And, and in so doing, the forces that shape us into the people that God wants us to become. Now, no one is a suffering seeker. I hope you're not one of those people who's just looking for an opportunity to suffer with a kind of morbid monasticism, right? I hope that's not you. But the vast majority of us face situations in our lives we would rather not face. And if we look back on those things, we are able to say, God was working. God did something in me through that very difficult time. In our story today, David is going to receive guidance from the Lord. He's going to find out what the future holds. God is going to tell him what the future will be. But he receives this guidance we're going to see only after the Lord has drawn him into a situation that is very difficult. Basically, it is a trap. And so today we'll look at three scenes in 1 Samuel 23. David leads a rescue. Then David needs rescue. And David flees his captors by seeking God's guidance and God's foreknowledge. All the while, God is making a king. God is forging a man in the desert who will reign over Israel. Let's look at our first scene, which is a rescue mission to Keilah. The rescue of Keilah. 1 Samuel 23, 1 through 6. Now, David has to lead a rescue mission to deliver these people from the Philistines. It says, it was reported to David, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and raiding the threshing floor. So David inquired of the Lord. That becomes very critical to the entire account. David asked the Lord, should I launch an attack against the Philistines? The Lord answered David, launch an attack against the Philistines and rescue Keilah. But David's men said to him, look, we're afraid. 
We're here in Judah. Don't you remember why we're here? The prophet told us to come here. This is kind of terrifying. And how much more are we going to be afraid? If we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces, what are they saying? They are saying Saul will surely find out about this. He will surely get word of this, this battle. But David's, uh, and then once again in verse 4, it says, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go at once to Keilah, for I will hand the Philistines over to you. And then David and his men went to Keilah, fought against the Philistines, drove their livestock away, and inflicted heavy losses on them. So David rescued the inhabitants of Keilah. Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, and then brought an ephod, which is the priestly vestment, with him. So we see the text, uh, just a few observations here. We observe that the fearful response of David's team is expected, but it needs leadership. We don't fault them for their feeling. But it does need godly, faith-filled leadership. David's men are initially fearful because they are behind enemy lines in Judah. At the instruction of the prophet Gad, they're there because God willed them to be there. And David is proposing that they take on now the additional impossible task against the entrenched Philistines in a walled, heavily walled city with a gate, with a gate that locks, with a gate that closes. But their, but their leader is David. They must remember this. He's David the shepherd. He's the poet, and he's also the giant killer. And now he's a fugitive. The scar, they can see the scars of war visible on his skin, the giant's blade heavy in his hand. David is a man of courage and a man of faith, and he is no stranger to peril. And he knows that they're not there by accident. God is orchestrating this whole thing. Why? I don't know, but God is running this. There's a scene, it reminds me of a scene in the book of Acts, at the end of the book of Acts in chapter 27, where Paul has to get on a ship because he's headed to Rome. Now, this ship, according to the text, is destined to crash on the rocky shoals of Cora in the Mediterranean. And as the ship is coming apart at the seams, man, Paul has to stand up and tell them all in chapter 27, verse 22 and 25. This is what he says. He says, now, I urge you to take courage because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. So men, take courage, because I believe that God, because I believe God, that it will happen just the way he told me. Sometimes you have to take courage. And it takes a leader who trusts in God to stand in the midst of chaos and declare his faith to encourage everyone to take courage, because God has a plan. And David and his men are facing their own storm, Fear is the natural response. Of course it is. But so long as they are following God's man and God's word, they're going to be okay. And they have to be reminded of this. David has to tell them this. David also seeks confirmation of God's will. I love this little moment in the text. In fact, it happens two times. Because we would think this would be a lack of faith or maybe weak faith, but no. David has to go two times in the text and confirm that's what the Lord's will is. God has already spoken to him. But after seeing the hesitation of the men, he goes back to God to verify his direction for them. God confirms his word, and they inflict heavy losses on the Philistine militia or the Philistine army, and they rescue the Kelites. Strong faith sometimes needs confirmation, doesn't it? Whenever I think I've heard from the Lord or he's given me direction or guidance or he's spoken to me uh, about a certain direction to go, I will want to seek confirmation. Why? Because especially if something intervenes and my faith begin, becomes a little shaky or maybe 
wavers, and I think maybe that isn't the will of the Lord. Listen, seeking confirmation for something the Lord has spoken to your heart about or some direction the Lord seems to be taking you is not a sign of weak faith. That's a sign of wise faith. That's a sign of wise faith, and David is wise. Paul told the Philippian Christians, I love this passage. It's in Philippians 1, 7. He says, I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. How is the gospel confirmed? How is it confirmed? In prison, in the defense of the gospel. It is in this trying circumstance that God, through Paul, is confirming the truth of the gospel. How is the truth confirmed? How is our faith demonstrated and validated? It is in trying circumstances that our faith is proven genuine. It is in the ordeal that we discover both the validity and the value of our faith. And we need to understand both of those things, that our faith is genuine and valid, and that it has greater value of greater worth than gold. Those in the field of security or cybersecurity know this well. In fact, some of you experienced this at the INL recently. If you have a breakdown in security, uh, what that will do is the weakness in your security systems or your protocols may go unnoticed until they're actively put to the test. And so we constantly test the strength of any system even if it's a faith system, to expose potential vulnerabilities. You might think that you live in an earthquake-proof home, but you'll never really know that until the ground starts moving under your feet. You won't know it until the earth starts shaking. And the trial both confirms the validity of our faith, reveals its vulnerabilities and weaknesses, and also shows its value to us. We also see that in David's case, Jewish faith and religion are at the heart of the text. The scene ends with priest Abiathar, the lone survivor of the massacre at Nob. And he brings to David a priestly ephod. This is just their sort of priestly uh, vestment that they would wear when performing their services before the Lord. It's a symbol of God's voice and his presence, his manifest presence among his people. And so David must practice religion on the run. None of this is prescribed by Moses in Torah. But David doesn't have the luxury of having access to the temple or the priests at Nob. Now they're dead. So David has to find a way to put devotion to his God at the center of all that he does. And the recurring theme that we see in this story is that whatever story David is in, Jewish religion and faith is at the heart of that scene. And so he has to seek the Lord's voice through this priestly ephod. What's our application today? We take courage in the Lord who confirms our faith in the midst of our trials as we seek his presence and guidance in all things. We take courage in the Lord knowing that it is he who confirms our faith in the situations and circumstances that he has sovereignly led us into And then we rely, we seek his presence and his guidance in all things. This is the Christian life. What you're seeing right here, that is is a picture of the Christian life. The second scene is Keilah then becomes a trap. Keilah becomes a trap, verses 7 and 8. Now David must save himself from the place he just saved. Verse 7, when it was reported to Saul that David had gone to Keilah, he said, 
God has finally handed him over to me. This is God. For he has trapped himself by entering a town with barred gates. Then Saul summoned all the troops to go to war with Keilah and besiege David and his men. Now, Saul decides to march on Keilah and capture David. The mad king, this is what strikes me about the text. Don't miss it. The mad king actually thinks that God is for him. God is on his side, even though up until this point, he has disobeyed all of God's commands. He has killed God's priests, a city of priests, and their wives and children, slaughtered them. He has repeatedly assaulted God's anointed king, David. He has done horrible things. And, oh, by the way, when he's not pacing around the palace like a ghost haunting a mansion, you can find him under the tamarisk tree and the high place practicing pagan religion. And here is a man who thinks God is still with him. God is still on his side. God is still advocating for him. Boy, does he have a rude awakening. And it just goes to show that people can believe that God is for them and be totally unaware of the fact that God is not for them. God is against them, and they just do not even know it. Tyrants almost always think they are doing God's will, unless they're atheists. They almost always assume that God is on their side and that their cause is righteous. How is it possible that a king who has walked away from God in this fashion still believes that God is working for him to, to uh, preserve a kingdom that God has told him is now being taken away? One of the ways in which uh, sin blinds us is to convince us that a lie is true and that evil is good and vice versa. The reverse that truth is a lie and that good is, in fact, evil. You'll be told by the culture, by the society, that it is neither compassion nor, compassionate nor kind to deny a person's chosen identity, no matter how absurd their claim is. They can claim to be a tree, and if they claim to be a tree and identify as a tree because inwardly they feel like they just are a tree, for you to tell them, no, you're not a tree is viewed as not being compassionate or not being loving and being unkind. But this is a symptom of a culture that has chosen delusion. Someone who has chosen to become deluded and is now experiencing the judgment of delusion. Let me show you this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. This, uh, this passage should leave you shaking in your boots, man. This passage should take you two or three days to, just to work through it in your mind because it's, it's pretty frightening. I mean, there is a strong warning, a strong admonition in the passage. Paul says this, the coming of the lawless one. Now, who is the lawless one? We mentioned this a few weeks ago. He is a person in the future who is, becomes the epitome he becomes the embodiment of lawless rebellion against the moral decrees of God, against the moral law and the gospel. Okay, so the coming of this lawless one that he's been talking about in verses 1 through 8 is based on or in accordance with Satan's working. In other words, Satan is the one who is behind his emergence. With every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders, what does he do? Serving the lie serving the lie. And with every wicked deception among those who are perishing, they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. What did they reject? They didn't just reject the gospel, they reject the love of the truth. 
For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned, those who did not know, uh, who did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. Paul is here describing a time when everyone around us will choose to become slaves, will choose to become servants of lies. And this level of idolatry happens when we demand to be loved, Paul says, in our sin. We demand to be loved in our sin without repentance, without confession, without conviction, without the cross. And we demand to be loved in our sin, and we love that more than we love God's truth. We love it more. And so this level of idolatry happens when we demand to be loved in our sin with no sense of conviction for our lawlessness or immoral choices or our rejection of the gospel, and we put our demand to be loved above all else. And the most unloving thing, one of the most unloving things that I could do to you is to tell you a lie and then tell you that that was true. Just tell you, listen, the truth you think you believe is actually a lie when you believe the truth is to deny the truth and lie to you, especially if your life is on the line. That's one of the most awful things that a person can do. Uh, Years ago, my wife is fine now, for those of you who are new to our church, but years ago she was diagnosed with cancer, and she's made it through. She's doing great. My wife's oncologist, her cancer doctor, told us that she had a killer cancer in her body and that we needed to treat treat it, begin the treatment regimen immediately. Now, how cruel would it be if he just looked at Carrie and said, you know what, you're going to be fine. You're good. Sleep it off. Walk it off. Just go home. Get some rest. You know, uh, drink some herbal tea. You're good. That would have been so cruel. Listen, telling someone a lie, especially when their life is on the line, is not kind. That's cruel. And and notice how God judges the person who chooses uh, this delusory state, this delusion, who just chooses to live and serve a lie. How does God judge them? He sends them a powerful spirit of delusion. In other words, God judges your delusion with delusion. Folks, this is a dangerous place to be. Heavens, may it never be. For heaven's sake, don't choose to serve the lies in our culture, because if you do, God may judge you with the very thing you demand. And I cannot think of anything more detrimental or dangerous than to reject the truth, to serve deception, to love yourself, to love your so-called truth above God's word and his truth, because God judges them with the very thing they have demanded of him. They have chosen a delusional belief, and now God is giving them more than they can handle. And be careful what you wish for because you might get it. He might give it to you. He wanted to save us from our sins, didn't he? He's our Savior. God wanted to save us from our sins, but we demanded to be loved in our sin with no confession and no repentance and no conversion and no cross. And now he has no recourse. Our Savior is our judge. There's no other hat he can wear. He is our judge. Saul is living a lie. He is not king. He has been rejected by God. His throne is a sham. And he falsely believes that God is actually on his side, even though he lives in his own fantasy world. And Saul loves himself more than he loves the truth. 
His demand to be loved and to be acknowledged in his delusional state over loving the truth becomes his unraveling. And if we want to embrace delusion, we can have it. That's the danger here. And we will drink it to the dregs before we tragically discover that the cup that we have demanded to drink when we get to the bottom has been a cup of wrath all the time, the whole time. That is dangerous. So what do we do as believers? Because we have people we love. We have family members. We have kids. We have brothers and sisters. Maybe spouses that we love and they've chosen a life of delusion. They've chosen to become servants of the life. What do you do for them on their behalf? I would say read Ephesians chapter 1. Paul has two prayers in that, in that chapter. And it is beautiful. It is powerful. What Paul says there is he prays, this is believers now, believers. You and I have to receive this prayer. We have to pray this for ourselves, and we have to pray this for those who are trapped in darkness whose minds have become futile. We have to pray that the eyes of our heart, Paul says, will be enlightened and opened. That the eyes of the heart would be enlightened to the truth and open to the truth. And then he says, I pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation and that's what we have to pray for our loved ones. We have to say, we have to stand between God, the judge, and the person who's chosen delusion. We have to pray for them and we have to say, God, please send that person a spirit of wisdom and revelation, not a spirit of delusion. Open that person's eyes, open their minds to the truth because listen, every single sinner, every person who was a sinner who is now a saint, now a believer, sitting in this room, there was a point at which you were in darkness too. Remember that? Every person who becomes a believer in Jesus, there is a moment in which the Holy Spirit has to flip on the lamp of the mind to the truth. We have to see it. And so we pray that for them too. We pray that for them. Remember what John said or Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19. No one has this one memorized. It's always John 3, 16. But Jesus said uh, three verses down, He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And we love John 3, 16, I do. For God so loved the world, finish it, his one and only son, that whosoever, whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Don't you want eternal life? Don't you want to not perish, right? And then in verse 18, he, he says, everyone who doesn't believe stands condemned already. What? And then in verse 19, he says, this is the judgment. This is the verdict. The light of the gospel, the light of the truth, the light and life of men. Jesus came into the world, and what did we love? We loved the darkness. He doesn't say, man, we just kind of stumbled into the darkness. We just kind of fell into the darkness accidentally. We unwittingly ended up, wandered off into the darkness. No, we love the darkness. When I sin, I sin because I love it, because I enjoy it. And I, if it was left up to me, apart from God's grace, I would parade my sin down the street, proud of it. This is what we do. We love sin. And this is why we need to pray for those who are lost in their sins, because they love it. And they've given themselves over to it, and they become deluded Listen, Saul is delusional. And this is what a life, when you choose it, this is what it does. He's the deluded king, thinking that a lie is the truth. 
and that His evil is an act of good. What's our application here? Well, we must become servants of the truth. Do you, do you know what you would have to do if you, today you came over to my house and you, and you offered to be my servant? I would really put you to work. There's a lot of things I'd like to get done. But what it would entail is you coming over and saying, I surrender. I submit. You're the master and I'm the servant. Listen, service is hard. And we have to become servants of the truth of God's word, of beauty in the scriptures. We have to become servants of that rather than servants of the lie. Rather than living in service to the lies in our culture, we have to pray for our culture. We have to love those people. We have to love people who do not think the way we do. We have to be constantly sharing the truth and inviting them to the gospel and inviting them to the cross. But we cannot become absorbed into this miasma in our culture, this poison that is making us become slaves to a lie. And number three, David averts uh, capture through God's foreknowledge. So this is the third scene. David hears that Saul has learned of his presence in Keilah and again inquires of the Lord. So he goes back to the Lord. What should I do? Verse 9, when David learned that Saul was plotting evil against him, so what he's actually plotting is evil, not good, not God's will. He said to the priest, Abiathar, bring the ephod. And then David said, will the citizens of Keilah, so now he's talking to God through this priestly vestment. Somehow, this is really mystical. He says, will the citizens of Keilah, the people that he had just rescued, will they hand me over to Saul? And will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord, God of Israel, please tell your servant two questions, two questions. Will the people give me up and will Saul actually come down to take me? Okay. And the Lord answered, he will. He will come down, and the citizens of Keilah, they will give you up. Then David asked, look at this, will the citizens of Keilah hand me over, me and my men, over to Saul? They will, the Lord responded. Why did he have to ask twice? I think the way in which the Hebrew author intended us to read verse 12 is, will they? Seriously? Are you kidding me? I just saved these people, and they're going to hand me over to Saul? Wow, really? And God says, yes, they will. So David and his men, numbering about 600, they left. They left Keilah at once and moved from place to place. So David once again seeks God's guidance because why does he do it? He knows he can do it, but why does he know he can do it? Because he has great theology. What does he know? David knows his God. David knows what God knows. David knows that God knows the future. God is the one who holds the future in his hand. He knows the God in whom he serves. And also notice that in the text, Saul does not come down to Keilah. He does not go to war with Keilah. And David is not taken. He is not handed over by the Keilites. But God said they will. What does David learn in this text? He learns that God doesn't only know the future... God knows all possible futures. God knows all contingencies. God knows all subjunctive counterfactuals. That's the technical term, if you just write that down real quick. God knows, doesn't just know what you will do, God knows everything that you would do if circumstances were different or if you made different choices. God knows this. Folks, this is why the psalmist and the writer of Proverbs says this, we are dealing here with a God of knowledge. 
He is a God who knows. He knows how the future is going to shake out in all of its glorious, meticulous detail, and God knows how things would go if you were to make other choices than the ones that you do. We are dealing with a God of knowledge. So the whole thing is just practicing Jewish theology. This is a very Jewish question to ask God what he knows. And we see this in Isaiah 44, 45, and 46. Just remember those chapters. These are critical. Isaiah 44, 45, and 46. In Isaiah 44, the prophet says, this is what the Lord, the King of Israel, and its Redeemer, the Lord of armies, says. I am the first and I am the last. That's God's way of saying I'm eternal. I have no beginning, I have no end. That's God's way of saying I have no beginning and I have no end. There's no God, capital G, O-D, but me. What is God saying? Now, God is going to actually talk about the other gods. Why? Because there are these supernatural beings, according to Ephesians chapter 6. He calls them principalities, but they do rule the nations. They do have the nations enslaved. And what are they passing themselves off as? The God who sits in the big chair. And they call themselves gods. And people call them gods. But the fact of the matter is, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is the only God. He is the only infinite, personal, uncaused creator of the universe. And this is what the prophet is saying here. He is the only infinite, eternal, uncaused creator of the universe. There is no God but me. Who like me? Who is like me? Who can announce the future, he says. Let him say so and make a case before me. Since I have established an ancient people, let these gods, these so-called gods, declare coming things. And what will take place? Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God but me? There is no other rock. I don't know of any. I mean, since I know everything and I don't know of any other gods, there can't be any other gods, right? That's what God is saying. Isaiah 45, 21, speak up and present your case. Yes, let them consult each other. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ages past or ancient times. Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no God except me. Then Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. He says, remember what happened long ago in ages past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. What does that mean? That that means God is category specific. He is category unique. There is no other being that belongs in his category. There's none like him. And I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. Why is it so important for us to understand this about God? Because the Lord makes this a litmus. The Lord himself says, listen, if you're going to claim to be God, then you have to have this requisite skill set. You have to be able to do this. And if you can't declare the future as I know it in all of its glorious detail, sorry, you don't don't even begin to meet the criteria. You're not even on the map yet, friend. Unless you have this, you can't even, this ability to know and foretell the future, you can't be considered God. You're not in that category. But this is no mere abstraction for David. David has lived this out. He knows this God. Look at this beautiful song he composes. I encourage you to read the whole Psalm, 139. He says, your eyes, Lord, saw me when I was formless. 
All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. David paints a moving picture of God's omniscience. Before we even take shape, our path is laid out in God's book. David creates a powerful poem to celebrate the foreordination of God who has laid out our lives in his book before eternity, before creation in eternity. So we are not some random, self-assembled particles. We are intricately and carefully and fearfully, wonderfully made. And God knows and foredains the days of our lives. Now, every believer in this room should take solace in that. Every believer in this room should rest in that. Here's what Paul says about it in Romans 8, 28 through 30. This is a very Jewish thing to say, right? He says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, what did he do? He called them. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. We said in the previous point that some people are deluded into thinking that God is for them when in reality, God is against them. But it's also possible, Christian, for you to think that God is not for you when he is actually for you. God is for you. Do you love him? Have you been called according to his purpose in the gospel? Then all things, you can take this to the bank. You can rest and Sabbath in this. All things are going to work together for your good onto glory, onto resurrection glory. Ephesians 1.11, he says it again. In him, we have also received an inheritance in the context there. That's the Jewish inheritance of the resurrection, the promise. Because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement, in alignment with his purpose or his will. Think about that for a second. Every single thing, no matter how bad, no matter how terrible the news no matter how much of a loss it feels like, everything in your life, good and bad, has to work in agreement with the purpose and the will of God. Be encouraged so that uh, we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. We have received an inheritance, an eternal promise, which is now vouchsafed. It is guaranteed in Christ's resurrection, and we embrace his fate. Let me ask you, Christian, do you embrace his fate? Do you embrace the cross? Have you identified with the cross in baptism? Have you identified with his death? If you've been baptized with him, you'll be raised to life with him. It's literally the most encouraging thing that could come out of my mouth for you. The most encouraging thing that we could hear. And this predestination is not some rigid fate, fatalism, but is rather an expression of God's unwavering plan and his love and his desire for our participation in his glory in Christ's resurrection glory. And so what's our application today? When you don't know why, you can trust the one who does. You can trust the one who holds your future in his hands. I have to tell you that there are a lot of things every single day that I face, there are several things that I face when I get up and they're just challenges in prayer. They're just things that I uh, wrestle with and they cause me a little heartache, a little angst, uh, a little, sometimes depression, right? Sometimes I find myself just being really depressed by thinking, because some of the things I'm praying for, like some of the things I'm, that I'm talking to God about and, 
in asking the Lord for some of those things, uh, I, I have a sneaking suspicion they will not be solved until I'm dead and gone. Like until I go to glory and I'm in eternity with Christ, right? So, so I have a suspicion. But I still pray in faith so far as I can. And there are other things in my life, one thing in particular, that I get up every day and I pray in faith and I face it and uh, it drains the life force out of me. It is a draining, life-sucking force of nature in my life and I get up, but I really do trust that however it is going to work out, God has a plan and God is sovereign and I'm in the middle of God's story. He's not in the middle of mine. So I just trust the Lord no matter what. And folks, there are things in my life I don't know, I can tell you, I don't know why. I do not know why the Lord led me into this circumstance. I thought things would turn out to be quite different and now I'm here and here's what I say. I don't know why, but I know the one who does. And listen, when, when I have an absence of an answer, it is the presence of my God that fills that space. That's what I need. When I don't have the answer, I need the God who does have the answer. I need his presence in my life to fill that space. So let's bring it home. Will you, will you get up tomorrow and take courage? Whatever situation or circumstances that you're facing today, will you get up tomorrow and just say, I gotta take courage today. It's not just gonna fall on me. It's not gonna find me. I gotta lay hold of it. Will you seek his guidance and his truth in all things and especially in those most trying circumstances of your life? Are you willing to become a servant of the truth, to submit, do the hard work of submitting and living in submission to the truth and the word of God rather than your own so-called truth or the things that you think are true? Will you surrender to him instead of becoming a servant and a slave to the lies of our fallen world? Can you rest this morning in the God who knows? And you don't know why, but you do know God. Can you breathe a sigh of relief knowing that the God, the God of creation, the only God, knows how everything is going to shake out? He directs all things, and he is working all things out for your good to lead you on to glory. Can you rest in that today? I hope you can. Will you pray with me? I would invite the worship team to come back up. Father in heaven, this morning, this afternoon, we come to you and we choose to submit to the truth. We choose to submit to your sovereign will. We choose to surrender and become servants of your word, not servants of the lies that permeate our culture. And God, we don't even know how in this ocean, this sea of lies that we are swimming in today, we can fend off deception and the delusion that is so palpable and so present all around us in every form, in every place. But God, we know that you hold us. We know that you have us. And God, we commit ourselves this morning to becoming servants of the truth. Father in heaven, this morning we rest in the fact that we serve a God like David who knows, a God we can go to and ask for direction and guidance and his voice. We serve that God and we rest in that today, Lord. Would you answer our prayers? Would you give us more yeses than noes? And would you hold us 
in those times when the answer is no, or not yet, or not for you, not right now? God, would you sustain us in those moments? And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you've never trusted Christ for your Savior, let me tell you, God has no recourse but to be your judge, and he doesn't want to be your judge. He wants to be your Savior. Will you submit your heart? Will you surrender to Jesus today to receive his amazing, epic grace for your life? And you say, how? The scripture says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was crucified and raised from the dead and you confess that with your mouth, you will be saved. Will you just embrace Christ in your heart today? Will you right now, will you just say a prayer? Say the words, I trust in Jesus. I trust in Christ, what he's done for me on the cross Please do not walk out that door until you've done so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.